Duncan Fletcher here, back for another Pads podcast. I'm here along with my colleagues, Stephanie Thorber and Stephanie, how are you doing today? Doing well, really excited about our conversation today and hearing about Chidozi's journey through the MLS, through the NFL, and um, I'm sure there's going to be valuable insight and, and golden nuggets for our audience today. Well, Stephanie, you just kind of unveiled the curtain before I had a chance to there, so I'll <laughs> we'll get right to it. Uh, we're very fortunate today to have the Senior Director of Player Engagement at Major League Soccer, Chidozi Ibiabuchi. Chidozi, welcome to the call. Thanks for having me. So Chidozi, let's jump right into it here. Obviously, uh, you know, there's a previous relationship here. We've known you for a while and the work that you've done all the way from the National Football League to Major League Soccer. Maybe you could talk a little bit about just that sort of initial foray in terms of how you got into the space as you were looking for a career in you know professional sport. How did you come to athlete development? Yeah, so I actually didn't know it existed, <laughs> to be honest. So when I uh, first started um, in sports, I always knew I played basketball through high school. Um, I was a pretty decent player, but obviously not good enough to, to play. As We all had hoop dreams or some dream of all those who played sports that they were going to play at a collegiate or even professional level. Um, but I knew very quickly in high school that I wasn't good enough. And so um, I knew that probably around sophomore year of, of high school that I wanted to stay in sports in some capacity. Um, so that's when I really started to do research um, around what was out there in the collegiate space around just sports. How can I learn about the business side of sports? Um, and so by my senior years, when I started to see like schools pop up with sports management degrees, and I'm not that old, but they weren't as available as they are now. So St. John's was, at the time, I thought one of the, the top programs in the country, and they had access to all the major sports leagues, just being in New York City. So that was my big sell, um, going, living, born, being born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and then going to like the Big Apple. I did sports management at, at St. John's. Uh, I was very active there. Um, and then during that process, of like just learning it from the collegiate space, learning the theories around the business of sports. Um, I started to do internships. Um, and so my first few internships were with Madison Square Garden with the New York Knicks and Rangers. Um, and so immediately I had that foot in the door of learning what's the behind the scenes of sports. And at this point, still I had no idea about player engagement. It wasn't even a thing that even the Knicks or Rangers were doing at the time, at least on a department level. When I finished my internships during school, I ended up working at the NFL um, in many different departments. And the way I found out about player engagement was actually just by luck. Um, the roommate that I had at the time, we both were working at the NFL. I was in their junior rotational program. He was an intern in player engagement. And he's now working with the 49ers as their player engagement person. But during that time frame, it was when I started to say, hey, like, that sounds pretty cool. Like when we'll come home, we'll talk about our day. And during that time when I was at the NFL, I was in player marketing in one of the departments. So I actually worked very closely with him on different projects because um, I worked very closely with active and former players, their agents, the team personnel staff. And I was like, how can I take the marketing side of this and really think about how it aligns more closely with, as I started to realize over my experience, more of the off the field side relative to kind of the development space. Um, and so that's when I start to say, hmm, I do think there's something there that aligns even closer with my passion. 
Um, and so over time, I was able to transition when he was promoted up. I was over to kind of go into his role um, within the NFL space. Um, and then, yeah, that's when I kind of learned about it. <laughs> that's fantastic. And out of curiosity, when you, when you made the transition to NFL player engagement, where did you kind of start? What was the sort of the initial foray into the field? And obviously, you're still in that space. So obviously, it set the hook pretty deep. I'm just curious, like, what did you do? And, and how did that how did that speak to you from a professional perspective? Yeah, when I first started, um, so at the time, the way the department was structured, it was um, really where you're thinking about the prep, which is the athletes who were coming into the NFL space. So a lot of collegiate players figuring out what that professional development and career development looks like for them. Then you had the life space, which is the active players in the NFL. And then you had the next space, which is former players, our NFL legends. And so when I started, that was how we kind of structured. You had folks who were in the different verticals that I just shared. And I was very familiar with the next space because I had basically me and another colleague of mine at the time, we helped kind of start the NFL legends community. Um, which is essentially like the alumni relations arm of the NFL um, from the league level. Um, and so during that time frame, I had a lot of projects that overlapped with the player engagement team. So when I transitioned over into the player engagement department, it was very much so you are going to be the liaison for our former player groups. So that's overseeing a lot of the former player programs that had existed we have recently just created the Bridge to Success program, which I believe they changed the name now. But that was just essentially like the transition program for players who had to think about what does that transition look like when they finish playing. And we really were focusing in on how can we support those athletes in that transition. And so my primary focus at the time when I first started um, was on the former player side. Just a, f a follow up question. You know, I, I recently had a conversation with a young gentleman who's an undergraduate student, and the question always comes up how do I get involved in the field? And, and you talked about at a young age in high school knowing that you weren't going to go professional or, or even play at the collegiate level, but you still wanted to be involved. So you started thinking and exploring and researching. Fast forward, you go to college, and you obviously made connections, started building a network. And, and then you have the opportunity with the Islanders and the Knicks. Fast forward, you're at the NFL. So what do you think allowed you to make those transitions? If you had to share with young men and women who are in college or starting their careers, what did you need to do to allow those opportunities to present themselves? You mentioned the word luck, but obviously you put in the work, you made connections. What are you know one or two things or even three things you think are important to share for people that want to get in this space and be able to connect those dots and kind of propel their careers? Yeah, I would say um, for me, like people don't like to talk about the luck part. Usually it's like, oh, I was the smartest or I was the best or whatever. I'm not that mentality. Like I do know luck is part of it. But to your point, Stephanie, you have to position yourself to be in those roles. So I don't, I'm not the bragging type, but one thing that I knew that was super important for me to get my foot in the door, I graduated the top of my class at St. John's. And so that's something that I am very proud of. Um, and I know that sports management majors have a knock and this is just real. Just I always keep it real. They have a knock sometimes on campuses of like, oh, that you guys don't really do work or you guys are just fans of the game. As we all know, as practitioners in the space, you have to be more than just a fan. Right. Um, and so 
for me, that was something that I prided myself on. And that's really what allowed me, I think, to separate myself from others who may have graduated with bigger connections or may have went to larger institutions that have a lot of connections um, because I didn't really know as many people in the space when I first was starting out. Um, So that's part of it. And then so being a good student is one, right? But then the other part to it too is as we always talk about networking, I don't necessarily look at it as networking. I think of it as just building genuine relationships with people. And that's really what I feel like was super important. Like as long as you're a good person and you work hard, those types of things will fall in place and you have to be patient. Like that was something that for me, I was rejected twice my first two times trying to intern at Madison Square Garden. The first time I applied, I was a freshman. I applied again as a sophomore. And to be honest, there was nothing really that changed on my resume the third time around. Um, But it was just that I was now really eligible to be an intern because that was kind of the process that they had set up with a lot of the sports leagues. And so I think for me, it's like a mixture of being patient, but then also being a good person and knowing that like your work ethic, um, the way you can adjust to different cultures, especially at the corporate space, those things are going to be very important. And the last part I'll share is your emotional intelligence. Like you don't necessarily have to be the smartest in the room, but you have to be able to read the room. And if you don't, it's going to in most cases, set you up for failure. If you can't necessarily know, like as an intern, what is the protocol? Sometimes you can think outside of the box. Sometimes you can, you know, color outside of the lines, but sometimes you can't, or sometimes you probably shouldn't. And how do you manage those things? Half of the job that you do is just managing personalities. And so having a high EQ to me is really, really critical um, to position yourself to get into one of these roles. It's very interesting that you say that because as Duncan and I have had some calls with different global partners, um, one thing that they've shared is the the lack of reading the room and connectivity and emotional IQ because individuals for the last two plus years haven't been interacting in person. So people are are losing that professionalism, reading the room, knowing when to talk. Um, and it's not just the last two years. I think it's been an evolution, but I think that's something that's just so important, that connectivity, that authenticity of relationships. Um, it's almost a skill that needs to be taught in school because, yeah. uh, unfortunately, people t- uh, take networking as a negative, ha- that it has a negative connotation where rather networking is um, a sense of connecting, but you need to do it in an authentic ma- manner. So I think those are all great points. And thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I think one of the interesting things that you're talking about here is this sort of ability to create meaningful connection with individuals. And maybe that's an interesting way to segue into a quick conversation around the work you did in the NFL Legends, which if I'm not mistaken, a lot of that was driven by sort of like the peer-to-peer work and creating connection between individual players that I'm sure that you had to play a pretty significant role in helping facilitate. So I'm just curious if you could kind of comment a little bit about how you went about structuring that particular um, initiative, how you valued the peer-to-peer, and then how you sort of inserted yourself in that process in order to help facilitate it. Yeah, so I think for me, the the biggest part when it comes to, when we say peer-to-peer, it's, it's being able to communicate with someone on your level. And we always say, and you all can attest to it as practitioners in the space, um, we didn't play professionally at the same sport that we were working in. And so when you are in that position, sometimes, that can be seen as a knock. And in other cases, you do have to overcome those things. And we always 
found from research, from anecdotal feedback that we would get directly from players, active and former, is that people who are in their shoes are more likely to resonate with that individual, right? And so the peer-to-peer model was critical with how we set up the NFL Legends community. And so we created what we called ambassadors, essentially. So we NFL coaches and those transition coaches from the player engagement side, as well as we had um, different ambassadors at the coordinator and we called director levels for the NFL Legends community. These were all former players, varying levels, you can argue, in terms of um, their cachet within the league. So you had some few stars in the league, those who were like veterans who had great locker room presence and were very well respected. And even those who were fringe players who only played a few years in the league, but they had a great story or message and the passion to give back to those who were in their shoes or are struggling as former players. And so that peer to peer model was critical for us to see the success within the NFL Legends community because players were very more receptive to hearing from someone who was in their shoes and someone who went through the same battles that they've gone through. And so all we had to do was not only listen, which is very difficult for some people to do, but we also were providing them with like, here are some benefits, here are some resources, here are some programs that we know are going to help in your overall development but not only are we going to be the ones to share that with you, you're also going to be hearing it from people who've gone through those specific programs and resources themselves and found it valuable for their own development. And now they're the ones sharing that message on a local, regional, and sometimes even national level for us. So, and just real quick, because I find it interesting, because there was, if you go back a few years, there wasn't, there was a maybe a hesitancy to migrate to a peer-to-peer, and then it very quickly became clear that migrating towards that approach was probably the best way to do it. I'm curious, was that decision made through data collection, research? What brought you to wanting to kind of go down that road uh, in that program? Yeah, I would say, um, and I always give credit. So for me, I think part of that process of what you just described in the beginning wasn't necessarily the strategy and approach initially. We were actually fought on that strategy um, because people wanted to be in that in that space that weren't necessarily in some cases given um, the same credibility. Um, and so I'll, I'll definitely credit Troy Vincent at the NFL. He was one of the big proponents of the peer-to-peer model. Um, him being a player himself, obviously, and then transitioning over into the corporate side, um, he knew kind of what it looks like to be successful in that space and then be able to give back in that way. Um, And so that was one person who was instrumental in at least championing the whole structure and model um, because he lived it himself. Um, So that was something that I found very helpful for us to be able to to implement once we did. That's great. I guess, uh, and, and to kind of sort of begin the conversation or to migrate the conversation over towards the work that you're doing today, what led you to make the jump over to sort of a challenger league in, in major league soccer? You know, it, it, it obviously it's come a long way in a very short period of time. And what was your thought process when the opportunity presented itself to make the migration to major league soccer? Yeah, I get the question a lot. Like, how'd you go from the NFL to MLS? And part of that for me is like one thing I always one of the piece of advice I would say I got from when I first started in sports that I hold on to this day that mentees of mine and others when I do speaking engagements, I always say like, don't fall in love with the brand. And that was the advice. That was one of the biggest advice that I got that I still live to this day, because we tend to attach ourselves. Part of 
the excitement of working in sports was either you played some sport at some level, so that's what your fandom comes in, or generally speaking, you're just a fan of the platform that it can provide you, or in some cases, status for some people. But I think for me, I realized that it didn't matter necessarily what particular sport. Like I played basketball primarily growing up, so I was more of a fan technically of basketball, but I also was a fan of football. I was a fan of hockey and, and baseball. Being in Boston, you're a fan of many sports in general. It's a sports town. And so I always think about them being very distinctively similar on the corporate side, right? So going from the NFL to MLS, for me, especially in an area that I had already spent a number of years in and experience around, it wasn't that hard of a transition. Um, and part of it was having a, uh, a manager who was really big on my own personal and professional development was very, very important for me. Um, and then it was an opportunity for growth, right? Like MLS is a growing sport. Um, it's a sport to me that I feel like doesn't necessarily get the credit, particularly in, in America. It's the number one sport in the world, but not necessarily here in America. Um, and so it definitely was a risk from that perspective, but I saw it more so as an opportunity to to grow and really challenge myself of like, is this something that I can do? Um, because I've always been able to work in other sports that I may not have necessarily played. Um, so that was something that was really attractive to me. Um, it wasn't right away where I was like, yeah, like absolutely, I'm ready to do it. It definitely was something that I had to think about for sure. Was, I had to talk with my mentors around it, um, pray on it for sure. So it wasn't an easy, quick decision by any means. Um, but it was a decision that ultimately I feel like was one of the best career decisions that I've ever made. You know, when individuals um, transition from team or league or league to league or uh, league to team, there's similarities, which you had mentioned, and there's obviously some some difference. Just wondering, what are some of the high level sim similarities that you found, but perhaps some of the most surprising differences now that you've been in the space of MLS for a number of years and, and you were in the NFL a number of years. So you were really kind of ingrained in, in both um, leagues where you kind of understood the inner workings. You, you didn't yep. just spend, you know, five minutes in each. Yeah. So it's almost, I was almost seven years at the NFL and I'm coming up on four, almost five years here at MLS. So yeah, I can say even from my experience on both, some of the similarities in general, in the player engagement space, player development space, uh, soccer is a little bit different in the sense that we call it different names, but they all are very similar in terms of the actual function. And so um, one of the things I think is very similar in general is that most athletes, when they're transitioning, it's going to be very difficult, even if you already know where you're going to transition into. Right. So let's say you, you have a job lined up a la Tom Brady type of thing. It's still going to be a very difficult decision for you to make because this is something that you've been playing in most cases since you were very young. And so that transition process is always very difficult and is very similar across all sports leagues, in my opinion, right? That's something that I have a lot of experience in. That's something that I can relate to. Um, and that's something that I know that across any of the sports leagues, you have to be able to build trust, credibility, have empathy, all those things are very similar across NFL to the MLS, right? The differences I would say is on the MLS side, they're not making the same money on the NFL level. They don't have the same cachet in some cases, depending on the level of star. Like you're talking about in a locker room, 
where the NFL, I believe the minimum is about four fifty, four hundred fifty thousand dollars for the for the minimum. And you can have players obviously well above that. Um in MLS we're we're talking about like eighty thousand dollars. And that was an increase from when I first started to players who can be making upwards of, you know, three to six million dollars. So that gap to me is way larger. Um and then also the age difference. Like in all, all of these other sports, even the basketballs and baseballs where you technically can go in at a fairly young age, you know, baseball, you can go in after high school, um, in some cases for the draft, basketball after you turn 18. In soccer, we've signed players that were 14. <laughs> you signed players that are 15. Like we just did our rookie symposium last month. We had a group of kids. They were literally kids that were 14, 15, and 16 years old. And so if you just can put yourself in that position at 14, and you're labeled as a professional athlete and where you are mentally, emotionally, physically, relative to your peers on that same team, that's the difference to me that is, it goes beyond just player engagement, right? That's a huge difference that you have to be able to, to recognize and understand. Um, and then in general, last part is soccer is global. So like we have players from 82 different countries. We're the most diverse sport in the world, in the world. Our league is the most diverse in the world. And so we can't just think nationally, like how can we provide this program or resource um, in the way that we always view it? Like you have to think in a global mindset and that's having a diverse team, that's having a diverse mindset in general and aligning yourselves with people um, that can also relate to different cultures. Um, and so that's something that I've seen is very, very different here in soccer than it was in football. Chidozi, with the young individuals that you just mentioned, the 14, the 15, the 16-year-old, are you having to create new programs or, or different strategies um, when doing those symposiums? Because a 14-year-old is very different than a 19-year-old, you know, which is very different than a 25-year-old. Yeah. So it comes with like, we have like breakout groups um, at the end of each general session each day. And those breakout groups look very different for that, for that age group. And so even though technically it's really hard for us to um, create individualized programs or messaging to those kids, when they are able to kind of step back and debrief on the learnings from the day, that looks very different for them versus the 19, 20, 21 year old. And so, hey, we talked about finances. Hey, we talked about from the chief soccer officer, Slat, which is basically our general manager of a team that told you this is what you need to do to make the team, how are you processing that? And that conversation with a former player, again, peer-to-peer -peer model, a former player who's been in their shoes, that conversation is very different than it was with someone who may be coming out of college. I think one of the things that um, I, I'm curious to hear your take on now, as, as you look at where Major League Soccer is now and, and the role of the player engagement group within it, and one of the conversations I remember having a few years back is that the player engagement department at the MLS was not only there to help the athletes improve and be better in their in their roles and on and off the off the pitch, but you guys were seeing this as a tool to differentiate yourselves so that other athletes all over the world would want to make a decision to compete in MLS yeah. versus another uh, professional soccer league somewhere else. Is that still the case? And can you talk to how important that role is? And how you view that within within your sort of scope of your role and within Major League Soccer in general? 
Yeah, that's one of our objectives. Um, our mission and player engagement is to engage and equip players with strategies to succeed. But one of those objectives within that mission is that we want to be the league of choice, right? Especially we want to be the top North American league and ultimately at some point be the top league in the world. And we're not there yet, I would say, obviously. But in order to compete with those who we think are on those levels, yes, player engagement plays a major role in that, right? So in order to kind of compete with them, how are you helping players on and off the pitch? How are you managing what that process, what that experience overall looks like for them, right? What does the facilities and investments look like within the league? All of that plays a part into what we do. And so our department overall has actually grown in terms of its function. So we, our new title is player and league advancement. So we want to not only grow the player engagement vertical, but we also want to advance the league overall in North America, as well as within the global landscape. And part of that is being able to provide these programs, resources at the highest level to be able to not only share those programs, but then also be able to collaborate with players on a partnership level. So that way, when a player is trying to decide, should I go to college? Should I play for a different league? How can I make the most informed decision? What is MLS offering to the table? What does that experience look like? How do active and former players speak about the league? All those things go into that consideration. And I would say before we came on as a, as a department, those conversations looked very different. It was the conversations around a player becoming a former player, no one reaching out to them, no one caring kind of what their post-playing career looks like. None of that was in existence at all. And so those are things that players eventually, when they are going to be your ambassadors in the future for your league. When they are living elsewhere, they're going to be like, you shouldn't go there because of my experience was like X, Y, and Z. So our, our part of our goal and our part of our role in the beginning was to change that narrative. And part of that is to help us compete with other leagues as well. I think that's really interesting because it places, like you said, the, the role of you know, athlete development in, in a different position. It isn't just necessarily about the player. It's about allowing your organization to compete, like you said, on the global scale for the, you know, to attract players, which I think is a fascinating angle on it. Um, and, and particularly, like you said, the sport is so global that you want to be that, um, that magnet for talent. So yeah. putting the best product out there is probably critical. And that being said, I think one is fascinating, and we haven't really talked a ton about it yet, but you kind of alluded to it, is you, you've got 82 countries, I think you said, that were represented in, in Major League yeah. Soccer. I'm sure that, uh, you know, 82, you know, different cultures and different languages. How do you deal with that in a day-in, day-out basis when you're dealing with these very wide-ranging um, cultural norms that you have to deal with that are coming to America uh, in trying to compete in a professional context? How difficult or... How much more interesting, maybe is a more positive spin on that? Does that make your job? It's both. It's difficult and interesting at the same time, to be honest with you. So like, to me, I feel like, um, as I mentioned, when I first started, I was very much thinking of it from a national level. I've worked for clubs. I've worked for national leagues. But now when you're technically at a league level that's more global, that was a very difficult transition. I think now the positive side of it is that we've been able to figure out a lot more of what are those challenges that exist directly speaking with players that may speak a different language. Um, and so part of what we've done now is we've partnered with 
um, a, a tech company that is not just your regular human translator. Um, when you're going out, like for instance, right now it's our preseason and we're doing trainings, like you're able to provide these programs or resources in multiple languages um, very quickly. We're able to actually communicate with players from different cultures very quickly. And, and that's something that has been different. And it's, I think it's going to be um, critical for any global league um, moving forward is how are you able to not only communicate with people from different countries, but relate to them too. And so part of that in general, I think what we've done a really good job within our overall league is we have people that are staffed from different cultures um, to also be able to provide us with even better insights to do the work better. Um, so those are all things that we're still working through and we still have a long way to go. Um, but I think we're starting to make a lot of headway in that. And this may be a dumb question, but I feel compelled to ask it because, again, I've never shied away from the dumb question, is what, are, when, what is an actual sort of problem present itself? Like, how do you guys deal with these, these, these particular cases where maybe there's a guy speaking a, you know, a very unique language that maybe you, not, you, know, not every, you don't have somebody on your staff that can speak it? I'm just curious, like, how, do the, how do you deal with that issue on a day-to-day basis um, in order to put the best uh, player engagement or player advancement service in front of that athlete? Like, what does that look like for you on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so the, the good news is that we work very closely with our clubs. Um, and so being on the league level, um, we obviously have one kind of perspective and view of things from my experience in general from many different sports. Um, the league level isn't always the level that you can get the most information to deal with those types of issues. And so at the club level, that's where you see like you may have a player on the team who speaks the same language or is um, very familiar with the situation. Or if it's something that is an issue that you can't necessarily bring in like a teammate or a coach or assistant coach who may speak the language where we have translators that the clubs utilize um, because they've been, as you know, when you're scouting players from different countries, you know, okay, if we're getting talent from these different countries, you want to make sure that you have someone who they can relate to if and when they come to the club. And so clubs have a lot of experience uh, working with translators and those who on staff that they kind of utilize as a resource for when those players come over. So if an issue does arise, um, they're kind of using someone on staff who's going to serve as that liaison to help um, with the, the issue that's at hand. Yeah, I guess that's important, right? That sort of cooperation, because at the end of the day, you're you're all trying to 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 you know help the athlete, obviously, and then and then grow the the organization and the sport within the United States. Yep. Chudo, so you just mentioned um, working closely with the clubs. What is the structure in terms of athlete development services at the club level within MLS? Yep. So when we talk about growth in soccer, that is one area specifically that what I can share in terms of growth. So when we first started, um, there was no one in that space at the club level. This person was a person that wore, as we all can attest to, worked at the club, four or five hats. Um, they were the equipment manager, the team administrator. They were the person that was ops person. Like they did everything, right? And so what we came in when we started about four and a half years ago now, um, we said that the clubs need someone in this space. And 
Um, we're not there yet where every club has someone solely dedicated in the space. And that's where I said that's the growth opportunity. Um, but since then, we've seen now at least, I want to say almost half the league now, and we have 29 clubs. When I first came in, we had 24. Um, almost half the leagues has at least someone who may not necessarily be solely dedicated, but they have that within their purview um, and within their function. And so that to me is is within a four-year time frame. That's, that's amazing growth um, that we can now say like, okay, clubs are starting to put some resources um, towards the athlete development space. And, and that's actually a great segue to my next question, um, the evolution of athlete development. You know, if you can share with us from your perspective, where has the space of athlete development been? Where is it today? And where do you see it going moving forward? Yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm very big on history and I'm very appreciative of history. And so I know sometimes the notion can be out there that, you know, player development, player engagement, athlete development didn't exist back then. And you can even hear players saying that, too. I would argue a little bit against that from a historical standpoint, depending on the sport, of course, where you may have had people who were in those roles that didn't have that title or didn't have the departments that we do have now. Right. So you had people who were um, they could have been staff of the team or could have been consultants or people who just generally had that um, that knack to give back that were kind of serving pseudo in that role. Um, so that's something that I do pay homage to. Um, I know even from my days at the NFL, like you have some of the godfathers that we all know from the, you know, pl- the player engagement space, the Winston family, like being one Donnie of them. Shell, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So those folks, to me, I always pay homage to them because they were, they built the foundation of what we are now. And then kind of where we are currently, I think we're slowly getting to a place where we have departments, right? So they're not just the individual. And that part to me is a huge evolution from when I first came in almost now, almost 15 years ago, where it was very different, where now you actually have a department dedicated to this space versus maybe a person who has four or five hats. And where I see it going, I do feel like there is a lot of growth. And part of that has to do with not just the how do you help someone off the field, but how does it make good business sense? Right. And when I'm, when I'm saying sense, not S-E-N-S-E, but C-N-T-S, like how does it affect the bottom line? And part of what we're trying to make sure within at least Major League Soccer is that the persons that are on our team or the people that we work with from a player engagement athlete development space isn't just looking at it from that purview, but it's also looking at the business development side, the strategic partnership side. How can you help even in some cases you know, increase revenue within this space versus just being a line item that's technically on the operation admin side of the house. And so those are things that I think for us, at least in soccer, has been a lot of growth opportunities because we're not looking at it purely from this is a feel good. This is something that we know is the right thing to do. But as we all can attest to, has been a struggle with a lot of sports to really put resources behind it. When we know the data is there, the research has been done, the, you have the anecdotal feedback directly from players, from practitioners, that this is very important, the work that we do. Now we're also trying to make sure that you are well-rounded and have the business development acumen that you can also go out to you know, generate revenue, which now you're really changing the game for athlete development space. That's interesting. And I, I was about to wrap it up, but I, I like what you're saying there. Maybe I'll just quickly ask on... When you talk about the sense, you know, C-E-N-T-S, 
you're really kind of talking about return on investment for yep. both the player, I'm assuming, and the organization. And yep. when you talk about that, have you found that to be a difficult thing for you to square as a practitioner? Or do you feel that they're so closely interrelated that one begets the other and there's an opportunity for wins on both sides of the equation just yeah. inherently? I think the latter. Initially, when I started, I feel like most of us who are practitioners, that was a struggle. It's like, man, like this is the right thing to do, like from a mental health space, from a career development space, from continuing education, like this is the right thing to do. And that was always the struggle of like, how can we get more resources, more backing internally, more funding? But now I'm like on the other end of that, where I'm like, that part is a given. We've already demonstrated and have shown the that's important. Now it's how can this also make good business sense from a dollar and cents perspective? And that's where we're starting to see, oh, wow, like you guys aren't necessary. And I'm not saying that's how we were viewed, but like in general, in my opinion, overall in the sports world, that's how the function sometimes is viewed as like, you're just a cost center. But now if you're actually building opportunities for you to grow as a league and you're actually generating revenue in some cases, that's where you, I think you be, it becomes a very different conversation. Now, that obviously comes with a lot more, as we know, when you start to go to the other side of the house and your, your, now your goals and your performance levels, those things change. But I do think that that's kind of where I can see an evolution within the player engagement space um, and overall athlete development space that can, can really change the needle. I completely agree. I think that is a, that's a phenomenal place to wrap it up. I think uh, um, I love the idea of, I think, like you said, just to quickly kind of put a bow on that, the idea that what we've been doing so far at this point, if you're a professional sports league or team, you need to care about your athletes. That's table stakes. Uh, and if you don't understand that, then you're probably in the wrong business. Um, and then I think there's also, there was for a period of time there, there's this idea that talking about these things was going to mitigate or harm the athlete's individual performance on the playing surface, which again is complete garbage. And in fact, it it works the other way. So I, I, and there's now a lot more research. There's at least four papers that I'm aware of that basically destroy that myth pretty aggressively. So, and now I love what you're saying that not only is it, so not only is the, the mental health and wellbeing of your athlete table stakes, not only is their performance going to be uh, uh, positively impacted, but it's going to make more business or more money for your business and potentially for the athlete themselves. Uh, I can't agree more. I think that is an absolutely uh, a great insight and I appreciate that. For sure. So with that, ladies and gentlemen from Major League Soccer, Chidozi Ibiabuchi, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, Stephanie, thanks for riding Shotgun again and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you guys both again very soon. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having me.